0: Massachusetts a while back and I absolutely loved what she said she's we're in the middle of having this kind of discussion, and she she, she took and said, wayne if I'm hearing you right she says and she picks up her bible she said I could read this every morning and instead of at the end of it feeling like oh what a crud I am and how far short I fall so I actually read this in the morning and when I see that I don't measure up to it I could say wow look what God's doing in me and I said yeah wouldn't that be a great way to read it look what God's doing in me No, it's not done yet. I'm not there yet. And I love the honesty of people on this journey because who are we trying to impress? I mean, you know, religion is all about putting on good externals, but who are we trying to impress? We're all brothers and sisters who are muddling along on this journey. No one's got it all figured out, uh, including me. And so we're just just learning and growing and we're sharing what we're learning. And what makes sense to you, grab on it and live it. And what doesn't make sense to you, let it go. You don't have to bash the person or convince them they're wrong or anything else like that. And uh, so I think it does turn into that. But, yeah, I'm, I think mean, it's a great way to look at the commandments. When God says, you shall not, if that's a promise, man, that's a deal. That's a wonderful deal. Anybody else? Yeah? Well, to whatever degree you do, I don't really say, gosh, let's go through rebellion and religion and then let's get there. Uh, I wouldn't say it that way. <laughs> But is, is that often true? Yeah. And like I said to you when we started, religion, I think, is endemic to our flesh. It's not just what we got from institutions. It, there's something in us that craves dealing with our shame through a religious exercise. And we're going to talk about shame this afternoon a little bit, I think, unless you guys want to go a different direction. I'm really letting you guys be in the left-hand seat from now on. So there's some things I'd love to get to, but if we don't get there, I'm not worried about it. I'm more concerned that we're processing what we said this morning and learning to live this way. I had a man I got on a flight with. I may have shared some with the coffee shop when we were together a few months ago. But I got on a plane a couple of years ago, right when the Passion movie was a big deal. and was out. And uh, I sat down on a plane next to an atheist. I know he was an atheist because he told me he was. And uh, he had a Newsweek magazine in his lap with uh, Mel Gibson or the actor playing Jesus on the cover or something. And and uh, so I noticed it when I sat, and I was also moved up to first class that day because the back was full and they wanted my seat, and so I'm a frequent flyer, they gave me first class, so. I don't, Yeah, I don't usually turn it down when they offer it, It's usually fine with me. And, uh, but I figured God's got something in mind, actually. So I kind of was already thinking, I wonder who I'm sitting next to, and it was this guy, and he had this magazine, so I, I mentioned, I said, uh, and it was the airline copy, so I said, uh, man, I'd like to read that when you get done with it. And he said, you should in this movie. And I said, well, I saw it yesterday. He said, do you like it? And I said, well, there's parts of it I really like, and there's parts of it, and not so much. And I said, but overall, yeah, I'm kind of interested in what Newsweek says about it. He says, I hate this movie. I said, you do? He said, I'm an atheist. I said, you are? And he said, yep, and then I hate you Christians, and I hate all the things you're doing to ruin the world, and religion, and blah, 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 and he went on and on. And I thought, well, let me get him off this topic for a little bit. So I asked him what he did for a living and where he was going, and he's an electronics president, a vice president of an electronics firm, headed to Orlando, and we were on our way to Chicago, and uh, so finally he asked, "What do you do for a living?" And I said, "Well, that's really hard to describe." I say, "I've kind of taken to people. I kind of wander around the planet helping people sort out what Jesus really taught." And the reason I answer it that way is because of what he says next. Everybody I've ever said that to says exactly what he said. What do you think it was? Oh, you're a pastor. No, actually it's better than that. I wouldn't I wouldn't do it if that's the response I got. He goes, "Do you know what I think Jesus really taught?" Now. Here's a self-professed atheist who's going to tell me what Jesus really taught. I've never had anybody say, oh, really? Well, what do you think Jesus really taught? I've never had him say it to me. But they always say, well, you know what? I think Jesus really taught. Because everybody in the world has an idea of what Jesus really taught. I said, no, what do you think Jesus really taught? And he said, I think Jesus taught us that we have a Father who loves us more than we know. And if we could sort that out, we would know how to treat each other. And I was... I was kind of mouth agape, looking at him, and I said, and you're an atheist, why? He said, what do you mean? I said, I've been all over the world. I'll be honest, I've never heard it put better. I think that's exactly what the gospel is. Really? I said, Jesus exactly said that. Love one another as I have loved you. Until we get that love relationship down, we don't know how to treat each other. And I said, the reason why, you know, that's not around a lot is because people don't know the truth of what you just said. And I said, why don't you believe it? And he said, because I've never seen it. I said, man, that's sad. I said, I have. He said, you have? I said, yeah. So let me tell you about some brothers and sisters I know outside Dublin, Ireland. So I told him a wonderful story about them. He goes, ooh, tell me another. I said, okay. I know some folks down in Johannesburg. And told him their story. told him a story about some folks in Sacramento, folks I know in Visalia and other places in the world. And he kept going, ooh, tell me another one. And I told about a woman in uh, Kansas who lives an incredible life. She found out, this is why I think law never takes you where love does she found out on one afternoon that her husband was gay, that he was divorcing her, that he was moving in with his lover, that he had AIDS and had exposed her to it. How did you like that for an afternoon conversation? It devastated her life and he ended up divorcing her. She moved out, his lover moved in. Um, Eight years later she hears this little inkling in her heart I want you to go back and take care of your ex-husband while he's dying. So you there oh, "My goodness, that's one you wrestle with for a while." That's not you. Just you know, write that down in your little prayer journal and say, "Ooh, I heard from God today." <laughs> <laughs> She's going, "Man, I hope that's not God," and uh, struggled with it. Finally, after a few months, concluded it was. Went and knocked on the door of her old house. The, the male lover of her husband now answers the door. She says, "Hi, how you doing?" He said, "We're not doing well here." both dying of AIDS she said well can I talk to my ex-husband for a minute And so he came in and he's bedridden now he can't even move and the other one's pretty sick but trying to care for him and she said I just feel like I'm supposed to move back in here and help take care of you guys do you would you be open to that not as your wife just as a sister and he said yeah that would be okay we don't know what else to do so she moved back into her old house she cared for her ex-husband as he died he, he came to faith and repentance in the midst of that. His lover came to faith and repentance in the midst of that. He died. She stays on to take care of his lover. Because she felt like God asked him to. As he's dying, there's a knock on the door. Another gay man is standing there with AIDS saying, I understand you take care of AIDS patients here. She says, uh, no, not really. Uh, but she said, come on in. Eleven years and 60 AIDS patients later. Yeah. All of which came to faith, none of which was ever required. Here's a woman that just loved people into wholeness. How does law ever get you there? See, the stories I know of people who live this life of love and relationship, I mean, they are involved in things no one would ever choose to be involved in, and they're not in it miserable. Now she's, she's had a hospital given to her outside Kansas, and uh, they're converting it into a hospice for AIDS patients. They're saying the retro drugs actually we're using now are going to become less effective over time, and there's still an epidemic coming. And she also goes to Africa and does training over there. She invited me to go this past summer. When this lady calls me to say, Wayne, would you come to South Africa and help train some people who work with AIDS patients? I don't even, she never pays my way. She doesn't have the money to pay it. But do I go? You bet I go. And now she called me. She called me yesterday. Uh, would you like to go to China? <laughs> Knucklehead. Stop dragging me all over the world. I like staying home with Sarah. Um, but we may be going to China now, doing some stuff there. She just got back from a trip there. And See, love, we have a father who loves us more than we know. And if we could get our hands around that. Why religion is so powerful in our world, it presents us with an image of God that is well beneath him and then makes us jump through hoops trying to earn that relationship. And it keeps us from the living God and keeps it from that kind of transformed life. So I think it's real important that we get this bit. How do we enter into this relationship? How do we live relationally, think relationally? Because everything changes in that context. We could talk about love here. How do people in rebellion love each other? And I mean just the world's definition of love. I'm not talking about necessarily God's definition of love. What, what, what is love called among people living in sin? How do you love each other? Think about it? Give me some ideas. I'm not looking for a specific answer. Spend money, Spend money. Indulgence. Enabling. You know, you're not a conscience for people. You just, you know, love them no matter what they're doing. You, I mean, the whole idea of love here is just live and let live. Who cares? Get on with it, you know. And, yeah. What does love look like here? People caught up in religion. What does love look like? Huh? Controlling. Controlling. Very controlling. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Conform. Conforming. Correcting. Pardon? Correcting. Correcting. Let's even get more vicious than that. Isn't love in a religious context incredibly manipulative? Mm-hmm. And you do horrible things to people. people some, stuff you would never do to somebody that you genuinely had affection for. But you do it, and you do it with a sense of this is for your own good. This is... This is what we have to do. We have to throw you out of here, say bad things about you, and shun you because you didn't conform to whatever it was that we needed you to conform to. Very conformity-based, very manipulative. And it just, I mean, you have to keep telling each other it's love because it doesn't look like love and it doesn't feel like love. So you've got to keep saying, this is love. I wouldn't do this to you otherwise, but we love you enough. My my wife served on a jury about a year and a half ago now. as was a murder case back in Ventura County where we live. And she said the most obnoxious person on the jury the entire time. She had an answer for everything. She, all the jury would do what she wanted. She was right. And she would, anybody disagree with her, one Mexican lady, Mexican lady objected to something. She turned to her and said, well, what are you? You're just, a drug. You're just an addict anyway or something. I mean, she would just, Sarah said, was caustic and obnoxious. No one in the room liked her. And Sarah said, I was ready to just rip her hair out. I mean, and that takes a lot for Sarah. Sarah's not a fighter like me. She just not. And uh, they were like weeks on this trial. And then uh, a, like eight days in deliberation. And Sarah said everybody in the room was ready to kill her. And when she got done, they finally got to a verdict. Um, which, I no, they didn't get to a verdict. They actually hung. But they finally decided they were hung and not going to get to an answer. This lady... When they were all done, they were back waiting for the judge and everybody to get in the courtroom to make their final appearance. This lady opens up her purse and pulls out flyers for their church's Christmas program and was passing them out to everybody, everybody to come. And Sarah said, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. She thought people in the room really liked her. And <laughs> said, there's nobody. Everybody just looked at each other with their eyes just rolling, shaking their head, and she had no idea. And if she's telling me this story. I'm going... I can think of the number of instances I've been in where people were probably doing that to me, just kind of rolling their eyes, going, this guy's a moron. What is he thinking? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So I tell you, Sarah and I have had the joy now the last 12 years or so for us of, and I said, it's not, we're not perfectly getting the relationship thing down. As I said, there are bits of us that got rebellion in it. There's bits of us that are still find ourselves thinking more religiously than we want. But more and more we're learning to live relationally in the life of Jesus every day. And I hear people all the time tell me they're relational. I say, "What does that mean?" I, say, oh, I go to a small group or house church or whatever. I go, "You know what you know what relational is? Here's here define it. That you know God for who He is. you're growing in a relationship with a God as He really is is one. And two, you take every relationship that crosses your path on a given day seriously. Does God have something in it? It's not just a relationship with a small group. It's, it's the relationship. It's the person I'm sitting next to on the plane coming out here. Does God have something in this or not? He doesn't always. I, I don't harass every person I sit next to. But I almost always say hi to them. And I almost kind of ask them where they're going. And you know the people that are saying, would you shut up, I've got work to do. You know, I don't say it verbally, but their face says it. I leave them alone. I, I'm not there to torture anybody. I do anti-harassment stuff with public schools. And to me, the whole harassment game... Which now they're saying, you know, you can't even share the gospel in schools anymore because now it's religious harassment. No, it's not. Children have free speech rights on a public school campus. You can share the gospel. But, you know, if you've shared the gospel with a Jewish student and he's asked you, please, I don't believe that, I have my own faith, leave me alone. You know what? Leave them alone. It's it's really basic human respect, but for religious people, you have to define it sometime because I have the right to bash you with the truth. Damn it. That's how we think about it. <laughs> Sorry, I was a little rude. Sarah doesn't like hearing that stuff, but uh, That's that's how that's how it feels. You know, that's right. how we gotta get it to you and doggone it, and even if it's rude, well, it's for your own good. Which is how we ended up killing hundreds of people back in 1400s, hundreds, fifteen hundreds, the whole Inquisition thing. Islam is just where we were five hundred years ago. We can say, Oh, those people, are they killing people? <coughs> That was our faith 500 years ago, 400 years ago. When you take the right to push your worldview on someone else, carrying the weight of it, the A, number one, I have the truth. Number two, I have the backing of God. So number three, I can be as disgusting to you as I want to be because it's only for your own good. I mean, it's just, we are headed down the wrong road. To live relationally means I live in God, I wake up to God every morning. Now, some of you don't wake up till about noon, even if you're up by 7. I realize that. I'm a morning guy. The moment I my eyes open, I'm wide awake and I am, God, what are we doing today? Now God doesn't give me a list. I don't have any idea what we're gonna do today. But I'm in. I'm in. And then I just take seriously. I notice people around me. I could be waiting in line at the post office. I can be in a store, supermarket. Quite honestly, isn't very often. I just Sarah's so good about that. I just she takes me a couple of times. I buy things I didn't know they still made. The grocery bill's twice as high. I don't get invited back. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when Sarah forgets that, I retrain her with another visit to the grocery store. And she said, "I sent you for milk and eggs." And there's four bags coming in. Honey, I didn't know they made this stuff anymore. This is great stuff. So every now and again, we have to retrain her, but she's she's getting it. Um. We have finally found a life worth living. Every person that crosses our path. I mean, I'm walking through Chicago O'Hare, O'Hare Airport, and I'm smiling. I'm looking for people to catch eye contact with. I don't smile and say good morning to them. I don't say good morning in Jesus' name. Because that ruins the whole good morning. You don't want that. I honestly believe that Jesus in my life communicates with people, even through a smile or a wink or a greeting. I do. And whatever Jesus is doing in them is encouraged by. So living relationally, it's, it's not you go to a small group. It's not. It's you live relationally. It may involve a small group, but that's not the only people you target. It's, it's knowing your neighbors. It's finding a way to know your neighbors. Mine was just arrested the other day, and I'm thinking, God, it's probably more there I could have known about that guy. But the police broke down his door the night before I flew out here, and I've been checking the website for the paper at home to see if there's any... I hauled out his computer. I don't know what's going on. I've been we've only lived there eight months, so I don't. I'm not bashing myself for knowing him very well yet. He is the neighbor I knew the best in the neighborhood because he's retired and home a lot. And I just, but you have no idea what that's about. I uh, hope it's not a meth lab. That's what I'm kind of concerned about. We'll see. Um, that you don't live where you live by coincidence. You don't work where you work by coincidence. Which doesn't mean you have this new burden, I've got to know. If it's a burden to you, it's not relational, it's not it yet, so don't worry about it. When you're loved, those who are loved well will love well. If you're well-loved, you'll love well. So if I don't know how to do that yet, if there's people in my life that I can't stand that person, see, there's something I know, there's something that I don't know about God's love, that if I knew it, I could love them too. So I, everything now is wrapped up in, in the love thing for me. How do we work that out? So if, I, if I'm angry, if I'm impatient, if I'm anxious, I always sit back and say, something about you, God, I don't know. If I knew it, I wouldn't be responding this way here. I'm responding because I'm responding outside of that love relationship you and I have. I'm responding out of Wayne's needs and issues or something else. And what hope do I have if he doesn't change me? And the miracle that Sarah and I are witnessing is that God has changed more in our lives in the last 12 years than the sum total of the 40 years previous. And when God changes something, it's, it's a wonderful way that it changes. Because when God changes something, you notice it when it's happening. You, you, I didn't notice God was doing it. I'm in situations now that used to make me incredibly angry. I'm going, and I'm, as I'm in this middle of a situation, why am I not mad? This is when I'm usually like grabbing people by the throat and choking them. And I'm not even upset. See, I know what it was to think that spiritual victory for a long time was being angry and not expressing it. It's repression. See, I'm really angry, but I can smile at you and I can be nice to you. And then when I go home, tell Sarah what a jerk you are. See, that's what I thought was healing. (laughs) Healing is being in those exact same situations and places where you would have been anxious or angry or, you know, trying to manipulate your way in it. And you're sitting there going, I don't even want to. Last time I came to Pennsylvania, not last time a year, year before, when I came out for that camp that you guys were at, uh, at this castle thing over the side of Pennsylvania I, uh, I was at that thing, conference because a man who had met me a year earlier at an airport invited me to come out. Now I, I was standing at 2:30 in the morning getting my bags off the carousel with Sarah in Pittsburgh. At 2.30 in the morning, because a flight that was supposed to land at 4.30 in the afternoon got delayed in Chicago for, well, all kinds of reasons. A big storm, switched runways. President Bush landed there in the middle of the campaign. That always blows the airport. And so instead of getting in at 4.30 in the afternoon, we got in at 2.30 in the morning. It took us longer to go from L.A. to Pittsburgh than to go from L.A. to New Zealand a month earlier. That's, that's not right. Spent four hours circling Iowa. And I'm telling you, if you're going to spend four hours circling Iowa, it's not one of the things you want to be doing with that four hours. And... Uh, Finally, it's, you know, 8.30, 30 at night. We're all tired. Everybody's been hanging out in the terminal, and they're, everybody's angry and screaming. And this is, I, you know, ticket agents are just wonderful people to be angry at, and uh, I've normally done that. And there was a guy in front of me. At one point, they said, Mr. and Mrs. Jacobson, did you please come to the counter because we had seats had to be switched because planes were being switched. So I went up to the counter. We're standing there waiting. This guy in front of us is being absolutely obnoxious to this poor lady. He's all upset. He's late for his time. It's all the airline's fault. And, She's just trying to be as gracious to him as can be. And I'm, I'm looking at this guy going, this is how I used to act. This is me. And I kind of looked over at Sarah, and Sarah was looking up at me, and she had this goofy little grin on her face. And I said, don't you dare say it. She said, say what? She said, that guy reminds you of me. She said, it does. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> oh, that little rat. And I'm sitting there, I'm realizing I'm not even upset about this. Yeah, I don't like getting at 2.30 in the morning. Who does? But doggone, it's not my, it's not my control. So why am I going to waste time? And I'm, I'm just... Well, there was a guy there who had read The Naked Church 10 years before. He'd been a pastor at the time. He wasn't now. He'd read The Naked Church. He'd been praying that God would give him a chance to meet me. He'd been praying that for 10 years. Here's Wayne Jacobson call. He's flying in from Germany with a group of students that have been on tour of Germany. They're waiting to get into Pittsburgh. They're delayed as much as we are. He said, I heard Wayne Jacobson call. I go, Wayne Jacobson. And he looked up, and he sees Sarah and I go to the counter. And he said, that could be the guy. Not for sure. Remember what was on the book? And the book's older. The picture is pretty much as he's going, I wonder if that's the guy. And he kind of thought eventually it was. And as I'm waiting to get in line. And so he, he, he finally just he said, I'm going to watch him to see if he is what he writes about. Because everybody was frustrated and short-tempered. And I didn't know I was being watched. I get my bags in Pittsburgh. He walks up to me, this guy. and I introduce him. He says, are you Wayne Jacobson? I say, well, yeah. And I, I don't get recognized in airports. man. I mean, people don't know me. So I'm like, what? He said, yeah, your book changed my life. He said, I've been praying for years to meet you. And I said, well, how do you? I'm just, I'm dumbfounded. He knows who I am. And uh, we talked for a little bit. And then he called me a month later, asked me to speak at this camp. And he's introducing me at this camp last year. And he said, listen, I was watching Wayne. I went up to the ticket counter. I was watching him to say, let to see if this man really is who he says he is. And he said, You can't believe in all that anger, Wayne was just a picture of patience and kindness. And all that stuff I got up after that, Oh boy. You should have seen me three years before. I said, You remember that guy in front of me? Oh yeah, I remember that guy in front of you. That was me three years ago. That was long after I wrote The Naked Church. So No, this this transition that God does in our lives is just amazing to me. It's what Paul writes about in Galatians six when he says, Forbid it that I should boast in anything except the cross of Christ through whom I died to the world and the world died to me. I used to teach Galatians in groups. I got to tell you, I get to Galatians 6.14 and I would just say, okay, this makes no sense because I've been through the cross. At least I thought I had been through the cross. And I couldn't honestly say that I was dead to the world and the world was dead to me. There was a lot in the world I wanted. And being a good Pharisee, I could resist it. I could not have it, but to describe it as me dead to the world and the world dead to me, I, I, it just didn't seem fair. So I'd always teach this as, obviously, Paul's talking about an abstract spiritual truth here. It's nothing practically real. Uh, yes, we're tempted by the world. Yes, but that's not what Paul's talking about. And Paul's nuts about this boasting thing. He's always talking about this by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Paul knew this kind of righteousness. The reason I love Paul, being one of our wonderful apostles that wrote so much of the New Testament, he was a religionist before he was a follower of Christ. He could smell religion 1,500 miles away. He's, boy, Galatians seems like they're in a bit of trouble over there. Catch the, he could sort it out. Paul saying, I know the righteousness that comes from works. I know it. I climbed that ladder. It was on the wrong wall. I got to the top of that ladder. And where was he? Paul is to zeal a persecutor of the church. As to the law, found faultless. What else did he say about himself? He was the chiefest of? Now that's interesting. See, It's a good religionist. You read that and go, oh, yeah, Paul's being awful humble there. That's pretty sweet. He's, oh, I'm the chiefest of sinners. God saved me. That's first Timothy language. But I think, come on, he was a righteous guy working hard. Yeah, he had the wrong theology. He needed to switch from Judaism to Christianity. But basically, he had the right staff. And that's not the point. When Paul says he was the chiefest of sinners in 1 Timothy, he said, I was full of violent aggression, blasphemy, and a persecutor. He, he, he's, as Paul describes himself in Timothy, he is the Osama bin Laden of his day. He is. He was a terrorist. He was killing people who disagreed with his religion. And he thought he had the mandate from God to do it. This is Paul. So when he says the chiefest of sinners, what he is really saying, see, when I do these HIV AIDS working classes I do for this gal out of Kansas I was telling you about, I usually start with, you know, I'm a recovering Pharisee. And then I'll say something like, and I've just confessed something worse to you than if I told you I'd been a prostitute in San Francisco. And everybody laughs because we really don't believe it. But Paul says, when I got to the top of this rung, chiefest of sinners. That, because it's not only your own personal sin manifested in religious ways, but now you feel you have the right to compel anyone else to do what you want or... Now we don't get to kill them. Now we just write them out of our lives. There's other ways to kill people than physically. We don't get to go kill them today in America. In the Middle East, I guess you get to go kill people for what you don't like, but... Here we've got that down pretty well. No one's trying to kill folks for disagreeing with them, but you can't write them out of your life. The point is, religion is a ladder up the wrong wall. You get to the top of it, and you might be externally faultless, but the amount of sin that that had driven deeper in Paul, and then when Paul deals with it, or it gets dealt with in his life, he describes it later as, "I died through the cross, I died to the world, and the world died to me. That's... I would read that going, there must be something true about that I don't get. I feel like I do now. Everything that God has freed in me is His work and His work alone. When I got good at repressing my anger, I had a lot to boast about. I had discipleship programs. I had written putting people through them. And when people got through them, they were externally better. And we could pat ourselves on the back because we were more committed, more devoted, worked harder. And you get to Galatians 6.14, forbid that I should boast in anything except the cross of Christ. And we, again, this is Paul's super humble language. Couldn't put it into any kind of practicality at all. Now, man, every good thing won in my life in the last 12 years is his doing. And it's the cross of Jesus Christ that changes all of that. And, you know, I, I couldn't even sort that out more than 40 years ago. More than, excuse me, more than 10, 12 years ago. Because I had never heard... What happened on the cross between a father and a son that reconciled us to the Father? I had been taught from the time, I was born virtually in the local religious establishment's nursery. I mean, I was there every Sunday. I got awards and I was nine, ten, eleven years old for two years perfect Sunday school attendance. I mean, I'm talking Goody Two Shoes boy here. I'm talking about doing it right, doing it hard. Scripture Memory Verse Contest, I memorized 132 verses in 13 weeks. Because I have a nearly photographic memory. The closest one was 32 verses. I killed, man. <laughs> and I got the new Bible for it. It was exactly like the one I'd gotten two months before for my birthday, but I had one. Now I had two Bibles that were identical, and I wasn't reading either one of them. Yeah. I mean, I tell you, it's just a horribly captivating thing. And then to figure, then to find out when I was 42, that what had happened on the cross of Jesus Christ had never... I I was explained this way to me. God is holy and he made us innocent. We sinned and our our sinfulness has estranged us from God. And now God's justice needs to be satisfied. And so he comes up with this great plan. I'm going to take my son and I'm going to put him on a cross and I'm going to take out all my wrath for your sin on him. I'll punish an innocent victim. And then when he's done, when well, I'm done there, I won't be mad at you anymore. Now, see, I'm not dumb enough to think that that isn't great news. I, I, I grew up I third or four brothers. When mom and dad are hauling the wrong child to the woodshed, and it should be me, and it's not because I, I, I got away with it, and they somehow thought my brother had done it, and my brother's screaming, it wasn't me, it was Wayne. See, I'm not dumb enough to know this is a good deal for me. I never said, yeah, you're right, it's really me, take me to the woodshed. I would just say, what What are you talking about? I I didn't do it. They got the right guy, and mom and dad hauls him off to the woodshed. i say, "I, I like the wrong victim getting punished when I'm the one that deserves it. So that whole view of the cross at one level, okay, I'm good with that. I deserve to die, and Jesus went for me. Okay, that's good. But what does it say about God? I think there's the conflict. Well, tell me if we if we had a friendship come out of this weekend, we decided we want to continue it past this weekend, and then maybe you do something tomorrow that offends me, and then I'm angry at you. But you still want to be friends, so you ask me to forgive you, and I say, well, you know, maybe I could, but you know, you gotta kill my daughter instead. No, I'm gonna go home and kill my boy. To like you, I see. You know what? I I would love to forgive you, but you know, I've got this uh, I've got this wrath, and it needs to be satisfied. So tell you what, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go home. I'm going to get my 25-year-old son and a baseball bat. And I'm going to beat the living daylights out of him. I'll take all my anger out for your sins on him. Then when I'm done, I can fly back here and you and I can be good friends. The question is, do you want to be friends with someone like that? Absolutely not. That's the, and I think that, honestly, is the dissonant view we grow up with God. Because I don't know what to do with that. Because that's how we've been taught. God, but we've been taught, this view of the cross we've been taught is an appeasement view of the cross. All false religions, prior to the age of science, where we have few of them with idols, but going back to the times when there were false relig- false religions with idols like Baal and Ashtaroth and Moloch and on and on and on, what is it that those gods wanted from people? Remember? What was it? Appeasement. Appeasement. There's something you're doing wrong or some gift you need to give and you mollify the God. You keep the God from being mad, right? And that's... That's in in all our stuff. So many of those cultures actually get to human sacrifice. Why? How do do they get to human sacrifice? Sociologists tell us, interestingly enough, that this whole transition from from, uh, being nomadic people that kind of followed around where the food was to settling down in agrarian societies and communities is actually when the whole false gods thing started. Before then, people moved around with the food. They were less at risk from the elements. If there was a drought here. They just ventured onto a place where there wasn't a drought. But when you settle down, now you're more a victim of the weather, of pestilence, of marauding armies, of whatever. And it was in that time that our whole concept of false gods began to arise. Now, what's the best thing about a false god? Best thing about a false god? It's false. It's false. The best thing about a false god, it's false. There's no Moloch. There's no Baal. There's, that, that, they don't exist. They're false. So where did they come from? We created them. We created We did. For child sacrifice? Yeah, with child sacrifice. We created the false gods. And you see it even, we, we joke about it, but I, I play a little bit of golf from time to time, and I play a lot with, with strangers because I don't mind going down to the course and playing with whoever shows up. And mostly when I play, um, my friends can't play, so I do that a bit. And, you know, if someone's having a bad day on the golf course, every shot's going the wrong place or they're lipping out putts that should usually drop and they're not dropping, what does somebody say? Uh, Somebody's riled up the golf gods, right? They even say on TV during golf tournaments, ah, somebody's got the golf gods mad. Or somebody's late to a meeting and every light, you get stopped by every red light going across town. And the joke is, well, somebody's not living right. And we laugh because they're not very serious about it. But there's something innate in our way of thinking that when things go wrong, I somehow deserve it, and that's called shame. It's called shame, the one attendant thing left from the fall. It was there immediately Adam and Eve felt ashamed. They'd been together naked for I don't know how long, maybe two days, maybe a few months, I don't know. They never felt ashamed. Then they do the one thing God asked them not to do, and immediately they feel shamed. And they clo- now they clothed up with each other. See, this is very different. I mean, even now, if you're not into nudity and all that, which I doubt most of us are. We all seem to have clothes here this morning. But it's okay for a husband and wife to be together and not be clothed. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. We're not talking about sin here. So why was it the first thing that happened to Adam and Eve is they felt the need to be covered? There's a word for you. First covering of the Bible is fig leaves. And fig leaves are a very dumb choice for underwear. (laughs) If you've ever worked in a fig orchard, yes, they're large, but you know what? They're also itchy. (laughs) This conversation with God is going on something like this. Uh, Yeah, we ate the food and God's looking at them going, fig leaves, fig leaves. What are these people thinking? Fig leaves. (laughs) Covering always works against you. Coverings about protecting ourselves from each other and God. Neither of which we need. So God, so in our sense of shame, we create these false gods. And sociologists say, you know, it started out with just you know the rains didn't come when they needed them, and so ah, the gods of the sky are angry, and so we'll throw some grain in a river or throw it in a fire as an offering, and then the rains come. And go, oh well, the offering worked. So then you didn't do it the next year, and then the rains didn't come in the right time again. Oh, we forgot the offering, so we do the offering. And over hundreds of years, it didn't happen like in a few weeks. Over hundreds of years, because the weather being as capricious as it is, and years, I and mean, we've got killer bees—literally killer bees—in our attic at the moment. We're trying to get rid of. And um, I, I'm not—I'm I'm not a bee fan, but the. Uh, the bee guys out at our house said this is the worst year in 10 years for bees. Their bee swarms are all over this area. They're just all kinds of bees. Well, just, you know, right amount of rain, wrong amount of rain, whatever. Things happen. And if, when things go bad, if you're thinking, oh, my gosh, the gods are mad at us, we got to give them an offering, you give them an offering. And you start with something small. I mean, you give the least to God that you can give and get away with it. That's always how that works. So, yeah, you start out with little grains and stuff, and that works for a few decades. And then it's not working. So you got to up the ante. And so uh, little animals, little birds and things, and we'll try that. Okay, and that works for a while. And then it escalated, and it escalated. And then finally it got in so many cultures, whether it's virgins to the volcano in uh, Hawaii, whether it's 12-year-old sons to Moloch in, in Canaan. So many cultures got to child sacrifice as a way to atone for that sense of shame and failure. And if something's wrong, we've angered the gods, we've got to appease the gods. So our whole fleshy mindset towards gods is needing to appease, needing to curry their favor by performance, by offering, by whatever. Hosea expresses, and I think about as well as it gets expressed poetically. He talks about his own struggle with his own sin, and he said, What should I give to God in exchange for my sin? Shall I give him the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What is he talking about? Child sacrifice. Is that what it's going to take to make things right with God? Do I need to give him my child? Will that do it? He expresses in that expression all that is behind the false gods that got to human sacrifice. Now, I was in Nepal uh, in Kathmandu a number of years ago. Hinduistic culture. How many gods in Hinduism do you know? 325 million. Yeah, too many. You think one's tough to appease? Try appeasing 325 million of them. And if your baby's sick, if you're unemployed, if you're going through a tough time in your life, you know you've ticked off one of those. But you don't know which one. And all around Kathmandu, you can't walk half a block without passing a shrine to the, some god of something. And you know what? If you're on the outs with God, you better not. That could be the one you ticked off. So you got to light a candle, leave a flower, something. You've got to do something to appease. When you got 325 million gods, how do you deal with that? Well, all the false gods of the old covenant of the Old Testament, excuse me. Almost every one of them required child size. They'd gotten that far in the process of now we're giving 12-year-old children to God. What? You know why it's 12-year-old children? Heard this one time. Because once they're teenagers, it's no longer a sacrifice. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's about the time they turn nasty. So Less, less of a treasure to give up. I, I don't know if that's the reason. But you're giving them at 12 because they're just getting to the point where they're going to help you on the farm instead of cost you. That's their greatest treasure to you. And when you're trying to appease a god, you've got to give him his, your best treasure to appease. And that's your kid at that age. That's what it comes to. So many cultures around the world, unconnected to each other, except by that attendant sense of shame that is part of our humanity. When God begins to deal with our invitation and access into Him, the number one barrier to our relationship with God as those Abba kids on His lap is that sense of shame. Religion says it's sin. It's the sin that keeps us from God. The language I heard growing up, God can't bear to look on sin. God is so holy and so righteous that He's got to separate Himself. Whenever has God done that? Whenever, when Adam and Eve are hiding in the garden after that fateful day when they did the one thing God asked them not to do, and God comes to visit with them as he had always done in the cool of the evening. And now they've run off and hidden in the bushes. And God says, where are you? And Adams, who's marvelous at this hide-and-seek game, because he's been playing it for years, he says, we're hiding. Okay, this is stupid. This is just... This is the two-year-old behind the curtain. You know, we're playing hide and seek. Where's little Amy? Where's little Amy? And there's this big bulge in the curtain, and little Amy laughing to death behind it. He's never going to find me. And Amy's not that old yet, but we'll get to that, because my kids did. That's what this is. That's what this game is. Does God not know where they are? Does God not know what they've done? God's not unaware of it. Is he hiding from them? He's not. They're hiding from him. Sin is how we hide. Sin is not what causes God to hide. God is holy, righteous above anything. Your sin doesn't threaten His holiness. It never has. It never will. God can find us right in the midst of our worst brokenness and bring His life and holiness to bear on us. He can do that. And He does do that. The idea that God can't bear to look on sin is... One of those things, and the reason I think we, we, we put the focus on sin is because, the, the, remember, the goal of religion is to conform behavior. So by focusing on sin and performance, repentance, try and be better, we can put the focus on sin. The other reason we put the focus on sin in religious environment is because shame is our friend in religion. Shame is the most powerful, motivating tool in any one of our lives. There, every one of us here... Would, would, would any of you here like everyone in this room to know everything about you everything you've ever done thought or acted out would you want why why wouldn't we wouldn't we be embarrassed oh my gosh i would be there's not there's things about my life i hope you never find out oh now you're gonna go read my mail i know i can't wait to go through his garbage can and find out without it oh, there's things about my life for all of us that we're embarrassed about, a sense of shame and just and things we do that are wrong. We just go, oh, my gosh. And the feeling of shame. We, do we not know what that is? We do, don't we? All of us? Okay. That's what keeps us from being able to feel safe with God and to know our life in him. It's that that separated Adam and Eve. And when God, and Adam says, you know, we ate from the tree and we were naked, so we didn't. And God's what? Who told you you were naked? Well, you know, we ate the tree. Ah, is, is God getting information here? The, the Jesus I grew, the God I grew up with in Sunday school, would have to run out of the garden, out, garden at this point, screaming, "Oh no, not know you were sinners!" and run back up to heaven. Can't be near that. Can't bear to look on sin. God finds them, looks at them, and says, "That's a dumb choice for underwear," and makes them some leather stuff because God's into that, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> He kills a cow and makes you say, look, this will be better. The whole fig leaf thing its really kind of dumb. And yeah, God curses them. We, we've got the Old Testament religious view of God makes God out to be an abusive father. Absolutely. Abusive God who needs to be appeased. And doggone it, you better find something to give to him. Because that's what's going to appease him. And honestly, we have reinterpreted the cross in that context. Unfortunately. When God begins to make Himself known to Abraham, and I, what I love about these, we've got a little discussion at lunch about the Old Testament. What I love about these Old Testament stories is you have this God of love I described to you this morning. It is that God in the Old Covenant. Well, no it's not. He was meaner back then. No, he wasn't. God is trying to make Himself known to a culture who feels separated from Him in their sin and shame. And I, I, I want to kind of talk about is the flip side of the same reality. It's It's the It's two symptoms of the same disease, sin and shame. And it makes God an unsafe guy to be around, and somehow we've got to fix that. So do you understand when God comes to Abraham as he's revealing himself now, uh, probably not for the first time, but the first time in Scripture, he's making a revelation of himself to the people of God, who was going to be the Jews. He starts with Abraham and reveals himself as the one true God and gives Abraham this promise that just absolutely tortures him, doesn't it? You're going to be a father of a great nation. He wasn't even the father of one kid. 25 years from the promise to the reality. 25 pain-filled years for Abraham and Sarah. They're trying everything to get pregnant. They're even trying to have a fake pregnancy with her handmaiden to get a kid that way. Trying to fulfill what God said he promised them. Her, oh, I can't imagine every month Sarah's disappointment at still not being pregnant. Still not, past her childbearing years through menopause. she still has not had a kid. Can you imagine how this promise tortured them? Better not to be promised. You got promises in your life that haven't come to fulfillment and aren't they just maddening? Oh my gosh, God, it'd be better if you never told me. I, I like this father we know. You got to understand this about God. God has absolutely no sense of timing. He literally lives in eternity. God talks about things like they're coming tomorrow and they're 25 years off. And he talks about things that are like 30 years away and they happen tomorrow. Don't ever try and figure out God's timing. Jesus didn't even try. In Acts chapter 1, when they're saying, I said, now that you're going to bring the kingdom to Israel, and he just looks at them and says, The times and seasons are in Father's hands. They're not in mine. It's not been given for you to know. Every time somebody says, okay, this is the now now we're now the Middle East is perfectly set up for the end of the age. Oh, go away. I'm old enough to have read those books 40 years ago, and they were wrong then, and I don't have any sense that they're right now. Why? Because the times and seasons are in Father's hands. If we could figure it out, I think Jesus would have figured it out. He said, I don't even know. With the Father's up to that. So living relationally isn't by, we've got to figure out everything going on. I, I really don't want to live past today. Today's enough for me. Didn't Jesus say something like that in Matthew 6? Mm -hmm. Just live in the moment. And we'll talk more about that tomorrow because that's part of how we live in the life of this relationship. But as God reveals himself to Abraham and kind of tortured him, not really torturing him, it's the God of love trying to make himself known to Abraham. And then one day when he finally has the kid and the kid's getting to be now older and not a teenager yet because then it wouldn't be a sacrifice, as I said. But he's, God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son and take him to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. Now, was that hard for Abraham? Of course it was hard for Abraham. Who wants to give up their kid? But was it a shock to Abraham? And it wasn't, because every god he knew in the land of Canaan required child sacrifice. So if the one true god requires it, not a surprise to him. Painful nonetheless, but not a surprise so he takes Isaac, and he goes toward Mount Moriah. You Remember on the way, to, this is all in Acts 9, 10, 11, 12, and on. You can read it about it if you don't know it. On the way to Mount Moriah, Isaac, bright little boy, he looks up and he says, you know what? we got wood and we got fire. We've got no sacrifice. Dad, where's the sacrifice? I don't think Abraham's trying to be prophetic here. I don't think Abraham's that bright, to be honest. I think Abraham's got a kid he's about to kill, and he doesn't want the kid's last few hours to be tortured with the idea that, oh, by the way, you're the sacrifice. I think Abraham's going to want to hold that information off just as long as possible. Wouldn't you? So he turns to him and he says, you know what? God will provide his own. Literally in the Hebrew, what he says is God will be his own. That's what he says. God will be his own. Interesting. Is Abraham trying to be prophetic? I don't think so. I think he's just—I don't think he knows what's going on up there. I think he's deflecting the, the passion from Isaac. But nonetheless, he speaks the words of God. Mm-hmm. He gets to Mount Moriah. He's ready to execute the boy. The angel interrupts him. There's a ram in the thicket. I don't want your boy. And the message from the whole thing about Abraham is the precursor to the cross. What it is saying is the cross is not our sacrifice for what God requires because God doesn't require one. The cross is God's sacrifice for you so that you can know Him. See, I had it all wrong. I had it, yeah. God needed to be appeased. What better gift than His own Son, the most precious person that has ever lived on the face of the earth? The innocent victim gets to be the sacrifice that satisfies God with us. And it paints a picture of God. This is what I hope disturbs you for the rest of your life. I hope some of you disagree with me when I'm done because I first time I heard it, I went, okay, if that's true, why am I 42 years old and no one's told me this? I grew up in a Bible-believing fellowship. I attended seminary and training classes. I've been a pastor for 20 years, all kinds of conferences. I have never heard what I heard presented about the cross of Jesus Christ. And I was in Australia hearing it from a couple of former Anglican priests. And when I heard it, I went, oh, my gosh, if this is true... Is how I responded to it. Sarah and I talked about it on our flight home from Australia. If this is true, then everything we've learned changes. Say what again? What the it is true is? I haven't told you yet. I'm just messing with your mind still. But is there something you want me to go back that I said? You want me to repeat? Um, I just said it wasn't appeasement is all I, I think I've said so far. Oh, okay, there you go. That's what you're looking for. The cross of Christ is not the sacrifice God needed to love us. It was the sacrifice we needed to love Him, which is not exactly what I said, but that's about as close as it gets. Does that make sense? I am going to explain it. Because I'd only heard it the other way. And When I first heard it, I went... First of all, it answered every struggle I've had. I could think of specific passages in Romans and Galatians and Corinthians that this answered. I went, oh my gosh, now now this makes sense, number one. Number two, it made the Father as endearing as I think Jesus told us he was. The cross was not about God needing to be appeased because he has got all this wrath and he had to spend it somewhere. So he picked his only son. That's good news. Um... And I think what Abraham is getting from the very beginning, the precursor to it all, is it's not about the sacrifice for God. If, if he ends up sacrificing Isaac, and if the ram is the thing that satisfies God, then honestly God's no different than Moloch, and God's no different from Baal. And when I was standing at an altar in Megiddo, where the, our tour guide told us 12-year-old male children were killed on this altar to the god Moloch. And we're driving up from there to Nazareth uh, to be in the synagogue. And on the bus, and I'm supposedly leading this tour for this tour company, I'm, I'm on the bus going. And that's what I believe about my God. I really do. I believe my God is into child sacrifice. His child, but nonetheless, yeah, I do. I was so conflicted. I just said, God, I need something. Shortly after that, we were in Australia. And now I'm hearing something for the first time, and this was so outside my paradigm that I actually went home and said, I, what I prayed to God was, I need a revelation of the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is how arrogant I was. When I got into Australia, this is a group of Christians that were at a month-long camp outside Melbourne. They'd had these two Anglican brothers teaching the first 10 days of the camp. They'd invited me to teach the middle 10 days of the camp, and then they were going to teach themselves the last 10 days of the camp. And uh, I'd flown in from teaching three weeks in Singapore at a seminary, and I'd flown into Australia, got in the car. Sarah had flown in from the States on that day we met at, at the airport, and uh, we are choosing to be part of the camp time in Australia. As we were driving out to the camp, I asked the guy, I said, what are these guys teaching on, by the way? Because, you're, you know, you're following up some other speakers. You want to make sure you're better than them, obviously. you don't know what you're competing with anyway. So I said, what are this guys teaching on? I said, oh, they're teaching on the cross. And I said, the cross? And, I, and what I said was, the cross, that's great. What I was thinking inside is, the cross, that's Christianity 101. If they're excited about the cross, they're going to love my stuff, and uh, that's. And, and and his response to my saying, "Oh, the cross? That's great." He says, "Oh, it is breathtaking." I mean, the cross is breathtaking. I'm in the back seat going, "Oh boy, they got to love my stuff because the cross is the worst news in the whole book. The cross, you just kind of get past it quickly with salvation because I understand enough of it to make sense of it." If it's just an angry God whacking something so I don't have to go to hell, I'm okay with that because I don't want to go to hell. But I just didn't understand how that fit into everything else the New Testament was saying or what the Old Testament was saying. When I came away from there, we heard just the last two days of their teaching, and it caused me to sit down with them and pick their brains (laughs) the last two days I was there. What had you been teaching before? I want to hear it. They had a thing they had written that I read through, and I came home and I told Sarah, you know, we've never heard this. And we prayed, God, if this is true, we want a revelation of the cross of Jesus Christ. We just do. And what's true in it, we want you to make sense of it in us. What isn't, don't. And then for the next six months, I prayed that prayer virtually every morning, not as an incantation of any kind, just saying, God, would you give me a revelation of the cross? I read through the New Testament probably six times in that six months. I didn't read it and study it in detail. I just read it like a newspaper. Just read it through, looking for every reference to the cross, to Jesus dying Saying, if these things are so, it's going to make sense. It's got to make sense all the way through things Jesus said. It's got to make sense all the way through things that Paul wrote and Peter wrote and John wrote right to the end. And so somewhere in this process, about six months into it, after I'd gotten back from Australia, there was a moment for me when what I'm going to share with you the rest of this afternoon became clear. And every change that I would ascribe to what Sarah and I are doing now compared to what we're doing 12 years ago has nothing to do with leaving the institution. It has nothing to do with doing house church or relational church or anything else. All of it has to do with this view of the cross that is not about a father needing to be appeased, but about a God, about a father and a son who had conspired together to cure our sin in the cross. Not punish it, but cure it. And uh, that's what I want us to take a look at as we kind of pioneer through the afternoon. How, how are we doing time? I'm totally lost here. Okay, we're about, oh, we've done another hour. What a mouth this guy is. Um, <laughs> let me set up a little bit, and then we're going to come back from a break and talk about this cross and what really happened there. And, and what I want to do now, for those of you that want to do some reading later, I'm going to give you a list of scriptures that I'm going to draw from that's set up for this. And uh, I won't necessarily turn to all of them and read all of them uh, because I'm just going to pull thoughts here and there. And I, I hate proof texting, but I'm telling you, I could do 17 hours on the cross for you and we're not going to have that time. We're going to do about an hour and a half, maybe an hour and 15 minutes this afternoon. The the What I'm going to draw from in this is all of the gospel accounts of the crucifixion. So all the last few chapters of all four gospels, I'm going to draw from that. I'm going to draw from John chapter 10 Jesus being the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my car. I'm going to take language from there. I'm going to take language from Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. Primarily chapter 8, but all all four of those chapters get to this view of the cross. I'm going to draw from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In fact, I'm going to do that now. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 talks about the cross as a what? Remember? The cross is the what of God to salvation? Wisdom and power of God. I want to primarily get to the word power. Because 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 is all about power. And, and Paul even saying to the Corinthians in uh, the second chapter of that, saying, I didn't come to you with persuasive words of speech, but with the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of man, but the power of God. We're in the age of apologetics. Everything that's been won in Christianity the last 40 years is all intellectual conclusions about proof-texting things. And It's lifeless. Not, not, not necessarily unpowerful. I think, I think God's life is incredibly intellectual. It is not only intellectual, however. And if we're just convinced on the basis of logic, we still don't live with Him as the God who wants to be lived. Paul's nuts about, when I'm with you, I determine to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. For Christ, the cross is the power of God unto salvation. So the language of 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 is the cross is a power. It's not just an historic event. It is an historic event. Okay? I'm not saying it's not that, but it's greater than that. And Paul talks about it being a power when Paul writes to the Galatians and he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? What does he say next? Remember? Huh? Pardon? Later. Right after that, Galatians 3 1. What does he say right after that? That's next. The reason we don't know, the reason we don't know, because we used to skip it, because it didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I'd get right on to you, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? How do you who begun by the Spirit go on and perfect yourself through human effort? I I can get there. There's another phrase there. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Before your eyes, Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. How do you who began by the Spirit protect it? The question to them was, you foolish Galatians, you saw the cross of Christ. When? They weren't in Jerusalem. What is he talking about? He's talking about what Paul preached when he was with them. The thing he said he always preached, the Christ, the cross, Christ and Him crucified. Before your eyes. What he's saying is, you had, I thought, a clear revelation of the cross of Jesus Christ. If you would have had that, you would never suck into religion again. But you have. The The Galatians had. The reason we get church wrong is because we get the cross wrong. The reason we embed our life into institutions and performance and accountability is because we don't understand what happened on a cross. It's not because we got church wrong. Not because we're following the wrong principles of church life. It's because it began with an angry God that needed to punish sin. And when He punished sin and cured it, so He forgave us in the Son. Now, we owe it to Him to live righteous lives. And we subvert the cross by our own interpretation of the cross. Spurgeon, who said a lot of wonderful things, also and this is not one of his better moments, chalk it up to a bad day. There's a lot of things you can hear in old tapes of mine that are pretty bad, so I don't, don't think I'm just picking on Charles Spurgeon, but he said this one time, and if God did not spare his only son, how is he going to spare you if you don't do what's right? Now, there's good news for you. There's a gospel to preach all around the planet. If God didn't spare his only son, this is the abusive dad. How is he going to spare you if you don't get it right? So what what I think is incredible is we have the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world right for about the first 24 hours of a person's life. It's by grace and grace alone. You can't make yourself better for God. You just got to come. And God forgives and loves. We have got it right for about 24 hours. Then when they wake up the next day, it's, okay, but here's what it takes to be a good Christian. And now we start packing on the principles, the rules, the rituals, the way we live to show that you're serious about this. And doggone it, after all God did for you, doggone it, you better start doing this stuff. Horribly abusive. But we call it love, so we're so confused. I think as the brothers and sisters in, in the family, we're so confused as to what this life is because we've been given this pile of do's and don'ts it's the same law that the cross fulfilled and opened up a whole new way of relating to him that is absolutely different and the base of that is the cross so that paul could say to him, if you would have gotten the cross doggone it you wouldn't be sitting here going we can do this human effort following the rules we'll do better rules we've got good rules doggone it and we're working hard see we read galatians when i was in the rules and said, no oh, problem, Judaism. It's that circumcision thing, feast thing, and we're not doing that. We weren't requiring anybody to get circumcision in our f- family. So, uh, we're, we're not doing that. But when you read Galatians, it's about substituting the life of God for rules and regulations. So I'll read you a bit of Galatians 2, which is absolutely profound, probably tomorrow. But that's what Paul says to him. How do you see that Galatians 3? I'm giving you this list of scripture still. I just, I'm sorry, I parked myself on Galatians. One of my favorite books, by the way. I really like that puppy. But all of Galatians, but Galatians 3 and Galatians 6 and, and Galatians 2 especially. Okay? But all of Galatians. 2 Corinthians 5, huge. We're, we're going to look at that right after we take a break. And then um, 2 Corinthians 5, and then Hebrews, oh, excuse me, Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, Hebrews 9 and 10. And, those, and then oh, there's a lot in First John, but we won't. specifically. Be. So those are the big cross passages. They're the ones that when you read them again after what you're going to hear this afternoon, and I'm going, to, I'm going to posit to you another possibility for what the cross was all about. I don't expect you to buy it at the end of the day. If you do, you're too gullible or God already prepared you because I'm not that bright enough to give it to you. Um, in fact, words will fail me. I, of anything I will share, what I'm going to share with you after our break Words just don't do enough of what I would love to just, I'd love to just, you know, put it in your brain. But that's the Holy Spirit's shot. Uh, and He will. I think people who say, you know, what, I want a revelation of the cross. If what Wayne's saying is right, I want to know it. If it's not God, I want to know that it's not. So pray that. I could be deluded, and I got an email the other day. In fact, said I was deluded. Yeah. And I was... Great Pity, I think I put it on my blog, yeah, so some of you already read it, that's why you're laughing, but yeah, I, I got one of those from a senior pastor in North Carolina, which senior pastors are really scary, they're even scarier from the South, they're very scary down there, and uh, this guy just, I don't know, something ticked him off, but he, he just thought I was the deluded man deluding the family, and he was a little upset with me, so uh, I didn't put his name on the blog, because I wouldn't do that to him, but I, I, people hear that all the time, so I reason to put that on there, is just say here's a way to respond to that kind of thinking, because... I hurt for him. You know, some guy wrote me this morning and just said, man, it must devastate you to read stuff like that. And I, and I wrote him back and I said, yeah, 10 years ago it would. Right now, it's not about me. So, I, you know, I, I'm sorry. I, I remember feeling like him 15 years ago. I could have written the same email he wrote me. So I, I don't hate him for it. I just, you know what, God, hopefully he's on my site for some reason. Somebody's ticked him off or something. So maybe he's going to open. I don't know. God touch him. That's my prayer. So anyway, those are the passages. I hope you'll get a chance to browse through those, uh, and we'll talk about it. But... uh